If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. We've been marching through the Gospel of Mark together. The story of Jesus Christ and one of the takes, Mark's take on Jesus. And uh, Mark is a pretty easy Gospel to understand in its basic uh, format, the way that it's laid out. It's actually split right in half. There's 16 chapters, and the first eight chapters are about... Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's bringing the kingdom to bear, but he's hiding his identity. He's not showing people who he is. And then the last eight chapters are him marching towards Jerusalem to the cross, which is what his mission is. And so you might think that because it's a journey towards the cross that we might get to uh, Jerusalem about chapter 15 or near the end, but actually we're going to get there today. In chapter 11, he arrives in Jerusalem. Why? Because the last third of Mark's gospel involve only the last six days of Jesus' life. It's called the Passion Week. And we're getting there a little early. Normally we'd, we'd t- talk about this during uh, the Passion Week coming up, but we're going through this book, and so we'll, we'll tackle it now. Um, but the la- fully, a full third, more than a third, of Mark's gospel is devoted to the last six days of Jerusalem. And he gets there today and he enters with style, what's called the triumphal entry, what we celebrate usually on Palm Sunday. And so let's read this together. Jesus chooses his way to enter the city where he'll die. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives... Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed! is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple of months ago, we were sitting down for uh, dinner at the dinner table and just kind of getting everything prepared. And uh, we must have been having like sandwiches or wraps or something that involves uh, toothpicks because, you know, uh, we had toothpicks on the table and uh, we're just sitting down to eat and I just see this toothpick fly through the air um, across the table and I'll turn and look in the direction of my second uh, boy, Rhodes, who has just thrown this. And so I turn to him and I say in a very stern voice, excuse me. Did you just throw a toothpick at the table? And uh, 
and without missing a beat, he, he, he's, he gave this amazing response. As I said, did you just throw a toothpick at the dinner table? And he said, no, I launched it. <laughs> you launched it. Oh, that makes all the difference in the world. Thank you for telling me what really happened. Um, no, after we recovered from laughter because of the amazing response, um, I had to remind him of some things. So, of course, what he means is I, he had some kind of story. Uh, and so in his story, there's a difference between throwing and launching. And in his mind, he wasn't actually disobeying. He wasn't actually doing something you shouldn't do at the dinner table. He was, uh, in fact, a, on a mission of some kind, and there was some kind of enemy. And the, the toothpick was some kind of projectile that needed to be launched at this enemy. And I had to remind him that while well, the story is okay, at other times, that the dinner table is my kingdom. <laughs> and in my kingdom, there's a different reality than, than your story. So you can, you can have your stories, but when you come to my table, you've, you've got to... You've got to live in my reality, which is that there is no throwing or launching uh, toothpicks at the table. So you can have your story, but is it the right kingdom, the right reality? And it's really kind of a fundamental life question if you think about it. What is the, what is the thing that I'm acting out right now? I mean, we can put it humorously at a, at a dinner table, but like, what, why do I live the way that I live? Why do I do the things that I do? What is this, the language, even, launching versus throwing, that I use that describe the reality of my life? How would I describe it? Is it the case that fundamentally I am the protagonist, I am the main character of a story that involves me? Or is it the case that I am part of a kingdom of God, where I play a significant but smaller part in what He is doing in the world. And the difference between that is huge. The difference between how you label things, how you talk about things, how you live your life, what makes you excited, makes all the difference what you understand that tension to be. And what Jesus is constantly telling people, and they're not getting it, they don't get it in this passage either, is that He comes to bring the kingdom of God to bear. And so we have to stop living in our realities, our ways of understanding the world that come to us naturally, and we have to submit to his kingdom and, and see that it is actually the way, the truth, and the life. It is such a good thing that you are not the protagonist of your own story, that you are actually part of his kingdom. And that's such a good thing in the end. It's different than just living the story where we have our own objectives and our own reality. And so that's the question I want us to ask today. It's this. Do we fundamentally live as if we are lead characters in our own story or as if we are part of his kingdom? Do we fundamentally live as if we are the lead characters of our own story or as if we are part of his kingdom? And as a case in point, we'll look at the triumphal entry, this place of great confusion, of, of different motivations and different realities that are coming to bear because as those who worship Jesus coming in or bow down before him, they see things according to their own story. But Jesus, knowing that he sees that and even actually playing into it a little bit, knowing what they see, 
he delivers the punchline, which is, but I'm going, I'm bringing a different kind of kingdom. And if you are going to follow me, you're not going to stick to your story. You're going to come to my kingdom. So I want to compare and contrast these, these two ideas. My story, fundamentally living like this is my story, or living in his kingdom. So we'll look at three different tensions this morning. Here's the first tension that we have. In my story, what we tend to do if we're living in my story is to say, I control what I have. But if we're going to come into his kingdom, we see that he controls everything. He controls everything. So, you see the stage has been set here. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, what he's been journeying for for the last three chapters and he's literally, it's like Jerusalem is like a stage for this drama about to take place. And he's waiting in the wings. He's waiting in Bethany and Bethphage. That's what it says in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So he's, he's in Bethany and Bethphage. Those are the last two uh, villages before you get to Jerusalem, coming from east to west. So Jesus has been traveling. He stops at this, this place and He prepares the stage where he's going to make his entrance. And very significantly, we're told that it's at the Mount of Olives. Why is that significant? Well, Mark is telling us what you're about to witness has a lot to do with the book of Zechariah. Because that prophetical book in the Old Testament describes the Mount of Olives as being the place where God at the day, of, the day of the Lord would be revealed, that God is revealed to Israel again on the Mount of Olives. And then in Zechariah chapter 9, we see the king coming in on the colt that we'll talk about in just a minute. But Jesus is very intentionally stopping at the Mount of Olives. He's setting the stage. What else is significant about this? This is Bethany. He stops at Bethany. What do we know about Bethany? Bethany is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mark doesn't tell that story. Other Gospels tell the story, but we know what's actually happening in Bethany before he leaves and comes into Jerusalem. What's actually happening is he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. His friend, who was dead for several days, and he's raised him from the dead. And now, it maybe explains a little bit why there's this fever pitch and why Jesus can walk into Jerusalem and everybody will know who he is and everybody will be ready for him because he's just performed this great miracle, this thing that makes people really excited to crown him as king and also makes the religious leaders excited to kill him. How does he enter? We get this strange bit, six verses about where Je- how Jesus secures his mo- mode of transportation. How he gets his colt. So we're told he sends his disciples in. He tells them, hey, take, you're going to find this colt here. You can take the colt. If somebody says something, this is what you say back to them. The Lord has need of it. And then that actually does happen. And they get the colt. And this colt has never been sat upon before. And so we get all these details. And then we get that Jesus gets this colt. And then he, he enters in. Why? Why does Jesus, why does Mark tell us all of these details about why Jesus got this colt? I mean, surely it doesn't matter where he got the colt from that he comes riding in on. And there's maybe a couple of different explanations that are somewhat speculation. I mean, perhaps he was creating the buzz for his entrance. I mean, he's saying, 
you know, it'd be a pretty strange occurrence to walk up and just grab a colt that you've never grabbed before. And so maybe some people overheard it and said, the Lord has need of it. You know, it's, and then they let them go. They let them have the colt. I mean, that's so weird. And the whispers start spreading around that Jesus is about to enter. The Lord, whoever the Lord is, is about to enter. Maybe that's it. We actually don't know whether Je- where this is a, an instance of Jesus' divine providence, meaning he saw into the future and he saw that there's this colt that's going to be there. And, um, and then told the disciples how it would happen, exactly how it did happen, or if it was, in fact, the case that he had prearranged something with the owners of this cult so that that was more of like a code word. Oh, when you say the Lord has need of it, that means that I need this cult now. And either of those could be true because Jesus does, is God and knows things in the future and, and could have done that, but he also works in human means. But why does he do it? Surely the big question is why do we need this backstory? And I think the reason is because Jesus is controlling this whole narrative and he's showing us that he wants us to see that he has need of this cult and he can, he can demand what he wants of it. The Lord has need of it. It's his world. It's his kingdom. It's his story. It's his entrance into Jerusalem. It is, in fact, the only time that Jesus refers to himself as directly in Mark as the Lord. He does it indirectly a couple of times, indicates that he's the Lord. But here he says, the Lord has need of it. He's asserting who he is. I have need of this. And if I have need of it, then I will take it and use it for the whole, for a kingdom purpose. And it is for sacred and kingdom purpose. That's why this is a young donkey on which no one has sat. Because in the Old Covenant, you can see this in several different places in the Old Testament, Animals that were used for sacred use could not have been used for common use before. And so this animal has never been used for anything else, and so it will be used for this. He's saying, this is my kingdom, and I am going to control this story. To enter this city as its rightful king. And he's also saying to us this morning that... I have a right to your life. I have a right to assert who I am at the right time when I want to, to show you who I am. It's not the case that basically, you know, even though it feels like it's our story and it feels like these are my possessions and this is my story of my life and this is my career and everything is set up for my purposes, it can feel like that. But at the end of the day, the Lord just needs to say, the Lord has need of this. And he can use what he wants because it's his kingdom. It's his world. It's his entrance. That's the first tension. There's a second tension between the way that we think of our lives as my story versus his kingdom. And here's what we tend to think. In my story, God helps me with my goals. I have these goals in my life. I have these things that I want to accomplish. And God helps me. But actually, in his kingdom, God leads us, rather than we leading him to what our purposes are, he leads us into death and resurrection. And this is what he shows us next in verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now we need to see this from um, just a biblical and a historical perspective. What's, what's happening right here? I've already mentioned it. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. This prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we see why Jesus is entering in this way. He is clearly um, fulfilling this. And it says, even in that passage, that the reason why he would enter in on a colt is that he's being humble. He's humble. That's why he chooses the colt. Also, he's peaceful. He doesn't ride in on a war horse. He comes in saying, this is, this is peaceful. And so he's telling them, though their expectations are that he would help them throw off the yoke of Rome, which is occupying Israel right now, that he's coming in peaceful. Now, what they're seeing, the my story portion of this, is something different. They are perhaps remembering in the book of 1 Kings when David tells Solomon, King David tells his son Solomon to ride in on his coronation day on a mule into Jerusalem to be anointed as the king. Now, why would they be remembering that? Well, clearly, there's a, there's a mule involved, but also because this was the most prosperous time in Israel's history. There's never a more prosperous time. There's never when, a time when Israel was more sovereign and more powerful than when, than when what we call the united monarchy, the, the time of David and Solomon and Saul, when there was one kingdom. And, and Israel was powerful and wealthy, never more wealthy than under Solomon. And so this is time of peace, but it's peace that was brought by the sword. David brought the sword. He conquered all of the surrounding nations. And then Solomon ushers in peace. And so there's a signal here that this king has come to establish dominion like it was for them in the good old days. And now this son of David is riding in. But even more recently than 1 Kings, because that was thousand years before. This is just a couple of hundred years before. There was a guy named Simon Maccabeus who rode in in the same way into Jerusalem. This was before Rome occupied Israel. This was after Greece, but before Rome. There was this, this time period, and this story is recorded for us in the, in the book of Maccabees. It's not part of our Bible. That's a discussion for another day. But there's this, this story of, of someone riding into Jerusalem Simon Maccabeus. Why? Because he had just led a revolt against the leaders of that day. That was actually a Seleucid kingdom, and they had control of Israel at the time, before Rome, and they, they, they revolted against these kingdoms, this kingdom, and won some temporary peace and prosperity for Israel. And he came into Jerusalem two centuries before Jesus did, riding on a horse, with palm branches laid before him after conquering the enemies of God. And so Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, coming in and showing this, this model of riding in on a donkey with palm branches. But in people's minds, Jesus hasn't conquered anyone yet. And maybe that explains why the parade ends so quickly. 
Did you notice in verse 11? It's almost funny. After this big ride-in and everybody's throwing palm branches down and cloaks in front of him, he arrives at the temple. He looks around at everything and checks his watch. It's already late. All right, and then he goes back to Bethany. That's where he came from. He goes back to where he came from. He rides in, and there's this fanfare, and then it's over. Why? Maybe. Because people are willing to, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt, but then they realize he's riding in on the colt. He's, he's bringing peace. He hasn't done anything yet. It's not like the time of David when he had already conquered everyone. It's not like even Simon Maccabeus who conquered our enemies before. He hasn't earned this yet. And probably is not going to be the one that leads us against Rome. This maybe also explains why the crowd turns on Jesus so much. And how six days later, it can be so popular. Now it's a different crowd that yells crucify him later. Maybe some of the same crowd, but it's a small area. Remember, one of the claims against Jesus and the reason why from a human perspective he was killed was that he made himself out to be king. He came in acting like he was a conqueror. But he just brought peace and humility. And it turns ugly because if the framework is my story, you're not really doing what I want you to do from my story, which is to throw off this burden. Does God fundamentally help us with our goals? Or is it the case that fundamentally we have to follow him where he leads? Because they're not interested in where Jesus is leading them to the cross, to humility, to eventually resurrection and new life. They're interested in where they can lead him. Their goals. I have this Facebook friend. Um, it's one of those Facebook friends. It's like, you're, you don't really remember when you became friends. You've never actually met in person. And, um, but, you know, somehow they end up on your news feed every single day. And um, <laughs> he's always posting about, about God and his business. And, um, you know, he's like, I'm crushing my goals. You know, he's self-employed. I'm killing it today. God's really on my side. You know, and he tells these narratives. You know, before, you know, in my life, I didn't have anything together and I wasn't following God. And now I'm following God and he's helping me crush it all the time. Making so much money now. Now, there's something almost right about that, isn't it? There's something almost right because God does bless hard work and he does lead us into seasons of prosperity. And he does give us these seasons where we can have the desires of our heart. But it's such a dangerous thing to say, well, because I want this, then God must bless it. Don't we want a faith that's stronger than that, that's bigger than that, that's, that's not just about my will be done, but fundamentally our faith is about thy will be done. It's about submitting to where he's taking us. And yes, experiencing pleasures and good things along the way, but it's a different thing. It's his kingdom first, and my story second. His kingdom first. And what does his kingdom say? 
it isn't true that Jesus hasn't done anything. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead, showing that he has power over life and death itself. Showing the first fruits of what will be his ministry, that he is going to die, and so that he can be raised from the dead. And that he wants them to follow him into that death. Because if they follow him into that death, that humility, they follow him into his resurrection. So you don't want a life where God helps you with your goals. You want a life where you die to your goals and you submit to him and then you see that there's actually life on the other side because he knows where things should go. It's his kingdom. And in the end, it's his blessing. He gets to define it. There's one last tension that we see. When we fundamentally live as if this is my story, we tend to believe that salvation is found in circumstance. But in his kingdom, salvation is found in a person. I think all of us can picture what a better life would look like. I mean, just take just a minute. Just think, how would my life be better than it is right now? Some of you immediately think, it's got to be a different job. It's got to be a different spouse, different relationship. It's got to be that I'm married. It's got to be that I can actually take a three-week vacation or I can retire. An income level. It's got to be when this political thing happens, when this candidate wins, we can finally be okay. Almost certainly when you think, what would make your life better? You think circumstance. Circumstance changes. And that, if you're not careful, becomes your salvation. It becomes your hope. It becomes the thing that you fall asleep thinking about, the thing that you and your spouse talk about all the time. It can be the thing that you even pray about earnestly, the thing you think about all the time. Their exuberance, verse 9, they're following him and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna become a common praise word, kind of like we say hallelujah. And they don't really think about what the word means, but the word actually means save us. Save us, we pray. Save us, save us. So that's what they're shouting as they come in. Save us. And they have in their story a very particular understanding of what that salvation would look like. Save us. It's a different circumstance than what they're in right now. And whatever we believe would make things better for us can eventually become the thing that we bow to as our salvation. Do we understand what we are bowing to? Do we understand what that means? I might have told this story before, but there's this great story about the, some American tourists who were in the House of Lords, the British Parliament, um, some years ago. And that day there was the Lord Chancellor, Lord Hilsham was there. This is a regal figure in the House of Lords. Uh, he had a big black and gold uniform on and a wig on 
This is different than the way our parliament works. And it happened to be that day that some tourists were visiting and they saw Lord Hailsham coming down the hallway, this regal figure. And it also just so happened that that day behind the Americans was uh, this guy named Neil Martin, who was another British official and friends with Lord Hailsham. And so you have Lord Hailsham over here and Neil Martin over here and the American tourist in between. And Lord Hailsham sees his friend, Neil Martin, and he, he greets his friend, this regal figure, and he says, Neil! And all the Americans fall to one knee, you know, <laughs> before this figure that looks like a king. Clearly not understanding that they don't need to bow to him. And look, it's the same. Do they understand who they're bowing to? Do they get it? They do see a coming figure, Father David, our most successful king, our conqueror. Undoubtedly, they thought it'd be better to get back to that circumstance than where they were now. And that's probably true from a human perspective. I don't want us to kneel to things that we don't understand. We really believe that salvation is found in these other things, these things around us. It can feel like that in our story. It really can. It can feel like if I could just have that, move there, marry someone, be closer to family. It's a big one in Phoenix. It's a circumstance. It's a different circumstance than what I'm in right now. But the gospel is this. Salvation is not found in a circumstance. It's not. Even though it's so easy for us to believe that. Salvation is found in a person. He is coming to save them. He is answering, Hosanna, save us, we pray. By leading them himself to the cross. And so... We don't bow before those other things. We bow before the king who suffered death for us. And when we follow him into his death, we follow him into his resurrection. And on, in that resurrection, there is life. There is circumstance. There is better things. But it has to go through, the scriptures are clear, it has to go through his death first. Then there's resurrection on the other side. It's a bowing down of our hearts and saying, it's not my story. It's not what I believe would be best for me. It's him first. And then we seek him first, and then he adds in all these other things. If he chooses to, if they fit in his story. But we have to start there, and it's actually a better story to live into than the story that we make for ourselves. Why? Because he is the Lord. And he knows the outcome of things. And he's making it happen. And so it's better to be in his story, his kingdom, than our story. Let's pray. God, would you help us acknowledge you as the rightful king in our hearts this morning. We would move away from 
whatever our story is saying is salvation. We would hold to those things just a little more loosely, Father. We would not say it's this thing. It's this circumstance. But we would just feel again and know that if it's you, it's you that we're after. That you are not a means to an end. You are the end. That we would find a certain delight in you because of what you've done for us and where you have led. Would you help us to cling to that this morning rather than other things? In Jesus' name, amen.